You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here with Marie. And as we do this week, it's time to say a very good morning to my partner in crime, Marty Gibson. Good morning. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? Good. I am good. We were just having a little quick chew fat before we got started. It, it just felt really grisly, didn't it? Ah, yeah. This last week. It's very grisly. The, the, you talk about the media specifically. Yeah, yeah. and politics. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think, we look, we need to strap ourselves in. It is a marathon, not a sprint. But things are starting to get a little bit grisly. And you can kind of feel it, you know, now that we're only, what, three or so weeks out before the the house goes into recess and stuff is getting thrown around and it is just all starting to get a little bit fractious. I enjoy Derek Cheng's um, articles for their figures, but I, as I described, sometimes reading his stuff is a bit like a fever dream. You know, just all of these disparate facts and figures that are often contradictory and not necessarily stitched together in a way that provides an overall sense of meaning. And, and I guess... Yeah, the grisliness is that fever dream broadly applied to everything. You, the other thing I notice is kind of waves where where New Zealand female journalists seem to all feel aggrieved at once, as if they all synchronise up <laughs> this week. Uh, the ladies seem to feel particularly hard done by. To be fair, though, Marty, most of them are pretty menopausal these days, just <laughs> so. Well, I'm not saying They that. all are ladies of a certain age. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, Chanel. No, there we go. Maybe Chanel synchronised. Man, I even read his thing this week. So what was Derek talking about? So let's start with Derek and go from there. Derek was taking a deep dive into what's actually going on with youth crime and what can be done about it. But it didn't necessarily do what it said on the box. Um, He started out by saying just because youth crime is more visible doesn't mean it's on the rise, even if a huge majority of people think it is. So... And I pretty yeah, close to, to gaslighting and just throughout the article conflated the lack of reporting of numbers with a lack of it happening. You know, just it's one of those just if a tree falls in a forest and no one if, if yeah. a dairy's ram raided and the government decide that on the eve of the election it's better not to capture the statistics, does it actually spoil the high trust economy and uh, ruin a family? So yesterday I heard a news article, Wellington College, or was it Wellington Girls College, the one that's right in the centre of town, advising its students to take extra precautions or be very, very careful when going to the train because of the high rates of crime that are occurring on Wellington train platforms at the moment. And then there was a call for people who were affected by this crime to actually contact the police and report it. So they know that the crime is going on. They're fully aware. And it's essentially, apparently, girls are being targeted with high-value items such as cell phones and expensive pieces of clothing. That, to me, indicates youth-on-youth crime action. But they're having to ask people to come forward because, obviously, these things happen. These girls are getting, you know, intimidated, mugged, robbed, what have you. And either they're not getting reported because they know it's a waste of time, or B, they're potentially contacting the police and the police are saying, oh, yeah, there's not a lot we can do about it. Sorry, Pete. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But, you, you know, speak to a that lot of it. people who get that response from the police yeah. to seemingly serious crimes. Um, 
yeah, and you throw that and you dovetail that in with they are wanting to encourage people where possible to get out of their cars and use public transport. But you have got a large central inner city school advising caution to these students around taking public transport. What messaging does that send? Public transport is not safe. Well, you know, I'll... I'll set out a theory at the outset and I'll reference it, uh, I guess, throughout the show. I was thinking just generally about how New Zealanders have been suckered in by this government and its claims to compassion. So the theory that that I came up with was there's essentially parasitic compassion, Mm. which plugs into that desire that people have to help their fellow community. I often describe government as growing like a cancer between individual New Zealanders, stops them talking to each other and says, don't worry, yes, we're working very hard on helping these poor people. When Really, when you think about it, if I think about the neighbourhood I live in, if there was some way of getting together with the highly functional people around me to address the dysfunctional people and we weren't overwhelmed by them, you do something about it. And what's more, you do something more effective about it. Like you'd say, okay, we've got eight families here who are pretty effective, pretty functional. We've got one family here whose kids are heading for illiteracy and starting to get into petty crime uh, and often have nothing to eat. You'd go, well, there's eight families. We can handle that. And in fact, I'd almost say that if you really wanted an effective social policy, it would be to allow people to basically be responsible for improvements to other individuals. So, okay, if I can get that person's weight down by 20 kilos, you pay me 500 bucks. And, you know, if you compare that spending with the amount of spending on zero results, and I know you've done a deep dive into the Māori Health Authority Mm. which seems to be the best example of that this week. Yeah, you could get so much more done. But getting back to this parasitic compassion, it plugs into people's concern about the environment. So if you disagree with some bankers printing money as debt for our grandchildren, then you don't care about the environment. I mean, if if you disagree with Māori elites being given power of veto over governments, you obviously hate Māori. I think we've got to become aware of the prevalence of this, share it, and so it renders it less effective because it's got us into the crap here. But also, too, this government has gone and positioned itself as the arbiter of that compassion. Yeah. Because there was a time, you and I are both old enough that we remember this, that you didn't rely on the government for these sorts of things. If you wanted to get something done at the school, you had a working bee. You didn't wait for the ministry. You had a working bee, you all got out together, you raised the funds, you did it, and you made it happen yourself as a community. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is where, and I, you know, almost feels monotonous bashing nationals' hopeless efforts to make a case for them being able to care about New Zealanders. The case you can make is it's it's about short-term versus long-term compassion, and Labor's all about short-term compassion. If you want to be compassionate to a meth head, the most compassionate thing you can do in the short term is give them some meth. If you want to uh, be compassionate in the long term, the most compassionate thing you can do is often call the police so they 
stop doing the crazy stuff. They get a bit of Valium and some treatment. There's this ongoing misapprehension that what poor people need is money. Mm. I was just about to say that compassion is synonymous with spending. And this government, I think, genuinely believes, I think Grant, without a shadow of a doubt, believes he can spend his way to a kinder, more compassionate, effective society. I reckon that's a brand, but honestly, you've got to get in the head of one of these people who is totally tribal, totally tribally labour. And they've got, I think I mentioned it last week, you know, what's good for me is good for labour and what's good for labour is good for New Zealand. And so just just short circuit the whole thing and, well, what's good for me is good for the country. And Mm. right now what's good for me is basically soaking up all the money I can so uh, national get in and they can't do much and then we'll get returned fairly soon and I'll, you know, have a shot at being leader. I think it would shock New Zealanders how little of what Labor's doing currently is actually based on what's good for New Zealanders. It's all about what's good for Labor. Hmm. There was certainly, I felt, a collective sigh from a lot of the commentators uh, over the last week, and I think that there has been a certain number of them that have realised that, I think, getting to the the pointy end of the, the event, that the likelihood of Labor returning now with the polls is lower is dramatically decreasing so therefore that i think they're being a little bit freer about what they can talk about but it's almost like they're waking up from a, some sort of fevered dream that actually things are not what it is that they had said on the of, of the brightly painted aotearoa kiwiana tin and they're trying to uh, they're actually going, oh, well, look, there's this, this money being spent and these, these, the weights in health, especially in health. Mm. Um, there are issues there. There are all of these different things that are wrong. Now, these are the things that we've all been barking on about right from the get-go, uh, yeah. and we've been sort of poo-pooed and called conspiracy theorists and, and all the rest of it. And I think some of these chickens are now beginning to come home to roost. And it's just the cynicism now of policy, like the, the voting down of the parental leave policy was one that uh, in the last week. So that policy, I think, was it Nicola Willis that introduced that? And it was around allowing the parents, allowing parents to decide how that parental leave was allocated. They had full cross-bench support, but Labor used its majority to vote it down. Why? Because this coming week they're going to be announcing their policy. In their head, they obviously believe that what they're going to propose is going to be an absolute game changer for voters. Yeah, it's not about what's good for New Zealand. I mean, I no, guess it's if, what's if, good if for you Labour. Want to look at where the media's framing of New Zealand's politics comes from? It comes in no small part from from that neo-Marxist idea that you've got to favour a weaker side. So you know, if someone's down, you've got to buoy them up. And if someone's up, you've got to push them down in equity. Equity. That's probably something that feeds into the inexplicable level pegging between national and labour. Even in the pretty detailed economic analysis of what's going on, they never really fully talk about actually how much of a debt hole we're in as a result of these Marxist student politicians being given a credit card. The last number I saw was 194 billion. It's 194 billion. billion. And what that up for when they took power? It was like 18 billion or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and but that was before that number was before the two settlements that have both been reached this week. Now, I'm not gonna lie, I'm perfectly happy 
that teacher strike days are over. I mean, they were driving absolute chaos through this house. That's two really large wage settlements out from the eve of an election, the optics, because we all know that this government is about optics. They're not about outcomes, they're about optics. It's all they care about. So they needed to get the optics of those nailed down. They also are aware that both of those groups, being nurses and midwives and teachers, are very, very much in their base. So we can't have the base starting to look elsewhere for a new home. And the polls were telling them that they were. So they needed to, you know, get motivated to actually settle both of those settlements, the side of the election, and with enough time that they could potentially turn this ship around. Dear Leader and Robbo were both suckled um, as student politicians by, well, um, Jacinda Ardern, Helen Clark, and and Robbo, uh, Michael Cullen. You and I are both old enough to remember back to Michael Cullen on the eve of um, John Key's national government taking power, you know, where he said, there's nothing left, we've spent the lot. Mm. So that's what he's doing. He, he yeah. doesn't want to give National any room to do anything um, ambitious. And, I mean, he was in the news this week essentially saying this. You know, there's no room for anyone to promise anything because I've blown it out from 10 or 12, 18 billion, whatever it was, to almost 200 billion. That's never really acknowledged in, in the media, is it? Is you know, if you spend 200 billion, 200,000 million dollars, you've got to have something to point to. I mean, well, they've do- got no completed public works or anything, but, you know, they're going to be able to get some of those 200 new PR people in um, the erstwhile health department to point to some wins, but it wins on a credit card. I've got all my newspaper divided out and stapled up into themes this week, and there were two quite interesting things. One, I did pull together the politics and the fiscal whole theme, which, of course, Winston brought up last week. I know you guys discussed it on the panel. Uh, Nicola Willis picked it up in the House, which of course led to the whole great mirth around the size of Grant's Hole. One does not want to ponder the size of Grant's Hole too closely, I would have thought. And I found two very interesting things. There was lots of um, toing and froing about, is there a hole? Isn't there a hole? We know there's a hole. There's nearly a $200 billion hole. Mm. We know this. Interesting thing around this, again, is timing is everything. And Winston's ability, I guess 40 plus years in politics will hone this skill, his ability to actually hunt out certain topics or certain themes that will highlight what is going on or or be a touchstone for New Zealanders is really a rare gift. It has gotten to a point now that I think even the most jaded of media commentators Uh, and there's only one or two that are still saying, oh, no, he's not going to get in, he's not going to get in. I think that there is now a bit of a whiff of, we may not want to put that stake in the crowd just just in case he does. And the number of column inches that he has now had since he's had two high-profile interviews, he had one with Paul Brennan about six or eight weeks ago, he had an excellent one with Cam Slater, he is now starting to get the column inches because he's, his voice is getting out there. So to me, I actually am going to, I'm going to do a big ups to, to RCR on that. We're actually mm. starting to chalk up a few little wins. We are the little minnow. We are nipping around the, the edges, but we are having those conversations. We are getting plagiarised yeah. by the people who are, who are getting paid big money to do the job we're doing for free. 
a certain poll got mentioned yeah. a couple of days ago well, on the largest radio what did say? platform, it's which was a poll position. commissioned by us. Was it Hosking said that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's worth having a good think about the $200 billion because $200 billion is $50,000 for every man, assuming 4 million New Zealanders, every man, woman, and child in New Zealand. And if you if you kind of factor in that only 20% of uh, New Zealand households are net taxpayers, that's a quarter of a, a million dollars for every man, woman, you know, that every actual yeah. net taxpaying household's got to pay back. It's um, And, you know, there's been a lot in the news about Kiwis buggering off to Australia or overseas. So Ooh. in terms of this, the size of this so-called hole, right, 20 billion is also the number that is they've been talking about. So that's in terms of the current accounts. Now they have to present a set of accounts is my understanding, a set of accounts prior to the election. and The PREFU, is it? Or? Yes, yes. And uh, the PREFU, a snazzy acronym, PREFU. Mm. Our source has told us that there is scrambling going on in the preparation of the PREFU. And Crown Departments have been told left, right and centre that they are literally having to, to find money. Now, to give you a really lovely, interesting example of how Crown entities and government entities think about saving money, uh, I've got actually a staff member who's a former midwife, and she was saying the last time that they had this, that it all came down on high, that all this money needed to be saved. It even got so bad that in the department that they were in, she was a midwife, so she was in the maternity department, that all staff were told that they needed to bring their own pens to work. Oh, right. This is the sort of penny punching that you're talking about. I think that's a lot of pens to get to 20 billion just quietly. Yeah, that's a lot of pens. That is a lot of pens. Now, there is a lot of disbelief of whether or not that this is here. But the most important thing is, is that Winston raised it. Nicola took it to the house because obviously Winston can't. There was a little bit of jovility, but you need to take all that, that aside. And the media played up all of that, right? They played up, mm. oh, ha, 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 bit of a joke, play on words, bad choice, blah, you know, and all of that. Yeah. But actually, no, this is an important issue. This conversation needs to be had. Is there some cooking of the books before the prefu comes out? And is there, you know, and even if they come back and they I can see it now. Oh, no, 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 look, there has been some challenges in Cyclone or COVID or whatever du jour that they're going to, to cook up. I mean, I heard um, Hipkins yesterday turn around and say, oh, no, we wouldn't have been in recession if it weren't for the cyclone. Well, there was the cyclone, and there's always something. Yeah, I, I don't believe that we actually drop, um, there's a policy to actually drop uh, terrible news on a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, so, you know, on top of on top of that, you've got the, the poor old uh, dairy farmers and, you know, the average one, you know, even after the Fonterra dividend, you know, making a $100,000 loss or, Funny you should mention that. I pulled that one out now. So eighty thousand dollar loss. The dairy whole milk price has lost uh, as of today with the seven dollar a kilo payout. A model farm that makes a hundred and ninety thousand dollar loss, which is not offset by the dividend and capital return, making a loss of eighty thousand dollars in round figures. Mm, yeah, and that's five billion dollars over the next year. That the economy is mm-hmm. going to be down. Yeah. On top of what these guys have done, borrowing and wasting. $200 billion. You're right, there's precious little in the paper to actually confront 
just the hideousness of of that wastage and the terrible opportunity cost in terms mm. of life. There's lots of dancing around on a pin. Lots of dancing mm. around on a pin with it. Yeah, and as you said, no one will actually tackle it head on. And that's before we even get to health. So I mentioned before I did actually, because there is no cynicism that these things drop on a Friday. And of course, anyone that listens to the show knows that health is a personal hobby horse of mine. The Ta'akafai order, which is the, so normal people, that's the Māori Health Authority, that report dropped on Friday. The preface into this, of course, has been that exchange between Brooke Van Velden and Willow Jean Prime in the House last week around the Prezi cards to expectant mothers. And Willow Jean Prime ended up having to come back and recorrect and apologise on that because if you didn't believe that we were operating under a race-based health system up until this point, get your heads out of the sand. Remember that ostrich parasitic syndrome I talked about last mm-hmm. week? We're in a we're in a race-based system. And the foundation of this Māori Health Authority was a way to quote unquote address inequities within the outcomes for Māori. Now, the two-page report, I have read two-thirds of pre- I needed to take a break because I'm, I'm a lady of a certain age of a How certain weight. blood pressure didn't need it. But to get to that far, it took me about an hour because it's really chewy. And there's, I mean, you've written report. You've been a person that's been a report writer for this sort of things. Why do they have to, to put so much word salad, so much superfluous jargon? That sounds clever. I mean, uh, if I wrote it, it would be called, hey, why don't you fellas turn up for your appointments report? Yeah. As far as I got, there was a lot of jockeying to justify what essentially is an absolute disaster. The first year of that authority has a disaster. So we're talking about outcomes, whereas they have tried to pull staffing and teams that are specialised into Māori healthcare to be able to deliver outcomes. Mm. Okay. On paper, that's a good idea but they did not hire people with the skill set in order to deliver those outcomes. They hired people based on race. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess it it hadn't worked before, but it hadn't worked when people who were kind were doing it. So maybe... It's okay. It's okay. Socialism and communism, they will do it better this time. Yeah. So there were certain uh, high-level findings, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of these things because, as I said, she's fairly chewy, and I know people out there, like you know, if you're of a certain age, like me, your blood pressure doesn't need to go up anymore. They had a temperature-based report card, you know, a little bit like those uh, British weather maps now right. you know, that you can see. So you have red for requires immediate action. You have orange, which is generally, um, oh, she ain't flash, but potentially could be turnaround, and green is they've done that okay. So of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine metrics that they've got here, only two were green. Only two were kakari here. Only two were kakari here. And one was the interim um, Haora Māori strategy is expected to be delivered, delivered by June 2023. However, tensions described um, Manatu Haora and Ta'akafai Haora teams working on this required the intentional reset of ways of working. So in other words, you've got two bodies who couldn't get their acts together, who were supposed to deliver a report by 2023, but they have to reset it because they don't agree. And that got a green light. 
Mm. Excellent. And the other one was ministerial requests. Uh, there's an opportunity to streamline requests from the four health ministers, four, count them, four in that year, four health ministers, in order to assist uh, to Aka and Fai order deliver on its urgent priorities. That's what got the green lights, um, better reporting to the revolving door of ministers. We did the backstage pass with the foundation members on Sunday. And one of the things that popped up was they asked Rodney, you know, is government really like yes minister? Mm. And when you see reports like this, I just think to myself, this should be a BBC comedy if it weren't so tragic because it's true. Mm. I mean, the money committed to this, there have been, there's lots and lots and lots of information in here, but zero on outcome. There has, I could not find Anywhere in this report, now to be fair, again, I've only read two-thirds of it, I haven't quite got to the last of it, where there was actual outcomes, actual outcomes that are meaningful to Māori health. Mm. So again, Māori are being screwed the pooch, again, after 12 months, 12 months, because this is obviously the great hope that they had to improve outcomes for Māori, we know that there's a high likelihood that that will get scrapped with an incoming government. And to be fair, it should never have been created in the first place. One of the things I cited in there, you had entire teams that were already working on community-based care. And there are actually some really incredible Māori health workers out there who are doing the mahi, they're putting the work in, they know the communities inside and out. They are facing an uphill battle at the coalface, trying to get their people to appointments, trying to, um, I mean, I had a midwife, I remember her turning up at my place crying when my kids were little, and she literally arrived with me, I made her a coffee, she sat down, she burst into tears. Mm. And she had spent, she was late to the appointment, she had spent the best part of all morning chasing in a, in a local community a newborn baby to do its postnatal check after a few days and nobody knew where the baby was. Oh, man. Oh, I think auntie's got it. Then they go to auntie's house. No, no, queer's got it. Queer's got the baby. Because mum had, mum had gone off on a bender. And so she arrived at mine and she's, you know, tearing her hair out. And she's, mm. one of, you know, one of these frontline public workers that is just working their tripes out to make this happen. And then you have all this bureaucracy that's, creating all this layer of complexity and actually good people like that. Yeah. You know, those midwives, those district nurses, those community workers, those ones working attached to marae who don't complain. They just get out there and do the work. This is not making their lives easier. Well, I mean, Sorry, I'm the, getting um, the, the, the constant refrain as well is there's no continuity of funding. And I mean, I've worked for a um, community mental health organisation and, most of what I did, chairing that and being on the board, securing funding and providing paperwork to the ministry. Now, we had a whole lot of people who weren't accountants. You know, what would have been handy was a centralised accounting system and co continuity of funding, e even centralised HR. You know, we were doing a whole lot of things. I didn't get to do anything that I was interested in having to go at in that role. It was all working out the extent to which we were probably or possibly getting ripped off by the people who were there full-time while we were there as volunteers. And I think that's 
you find that's replicated throughout the country. But you've got, yeah, as you say, all these bureaucrats who are, who are there making things more and more complex and making compliance more and more challenging and also incentivized to paint a story of terrible need so they can secure funding through the central government. So, you know, the, the aim, and this is a problem throughout all the health system, throughout government, it's not on what's healthy and how do we make it healthier. It's what's unhealthy. So we focus on what's unhealthy and gradually all the resources get sucked out of what's healthy ostensibly to fix what's unhealthy, but it never does. Parasitic compassion. The word of the day. (laughs) You probably didn't hear the interview I've just done, but I've just spoken to Hana Tamaki and we talked about Vision New Zealand, obviously, but we talked a little bit about the Man Up program and, you know, they have been trying to get that program into prisons Mm. and it has been blocked. And she's quite honest. She said, look, they don't want to do it because we're the Tamakis. I actually really enjoyed chatting to Hannah. I thought she was really sincere, very open. And it frustrates me because I look at, you know, what work has been done in those prisons. There was, I know, a program, Celia Lashley. If you ever have get an opportunity to see it, there is a wonderful documentary film. This film was made because she found out she was dying. She had terminal cancer. And she was working in that space to get young men rehabilitated out of prisons to actually create a better life for both themselves and their families um, if Mm. they had young families. And she was effective. She wrote this incredible book called He'll He'll Be Okay. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, As a mother of two sons, for me, it was one that was crucial in terms of how I founded my parenting. She has an observation of how young men function and operate and what they need in terms of boundaries. So that documentary was incredible. And what she did in that program was incredible. Now, the Man Up program, for all intents and purposes, is really similar to that. You know, it's a a program that can go in and it helps to take these men who are disaffected and have made some pretty bad choices Mm. and helps them make better choices in their lives for the for themselves and their whanau. It's whatever they're doing is not working now. Why on earth Calvin Davis would then turn around and say, oh, no, we can't have that? Well, he was quoted on, on that interview with Cam Slater by Brian Tamakia saying, well, you know, if we let man up into prisons, you know, he'll just get them to join his church. So it's like they'd rather he was... They yeah. were in gangs, and I guess because you know, they don't want them to leave the Church of Labour. That's why. Well, yeah, this, this is comes back to that my oft-repeated adage that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. So people getting their act together, forming better lives and better businesses, doesn't make people demand more government or, or less freedom, but people in gangs do. And again, you know, it's quite dizzying confronting how evil that kind of way of managing things is. You know, you've got these people and we're believing that they're actually trying to help. And I guess a good number of them are, but you know, a tree's mm. fruit. Yeah, you do. And I think a lot of it now, I think if there's a theme that we're going to draw out of any of this for any of our listeners this morning, is that actually we need to do things ourselves. 
because the government is not going to do it for us. We can see this. We know this. We need to actually take our own communities back and start building it. And I know there are a number of people who are already doing that and a lot of the work that the VFF teams have been doing in terms of living free and staying free has has been working within those little communities. But you can actually have those courageous conversations yourselves at home. And one of the, I think, little courageous conversations that's going to start cropping up is, did you see the fuss that's been made around this book that has just gone, oh, appeared no. in its schools? And there was a little bit that popped up in the media over it. The book is called Welcome to Sex! Exclamation mark, And it's a new sex ed book. It is targeted to 11 to 14 year olds. The Herald on Sunday did an editorial on it and they sort of cited that there were a few elements there, but they, I mean, their general cut and thrust of it is, look, just don't worry about it, really. Um, no. It's not as bad as it might seem. Look, the kids are going to look at porn anyway. Yeah, it's far better than them looking at porn. It's far better than them looking at porn, yes. You know, there are all these different myths around sex. And bearing in mind, this is targeted between 11 and 14-year-olds. With a mature eight-year-old, you know, they'd be happy for a mature eight-year-old to be reading about. It's just yet more creepy interest in other people's children. I certainly spend a bit of time now. I've got young kids, you know, being asked questions and thinking, you don't need to know that. I, I you know, I mean, it's a many ways a father's duty to preserve innocence. And so I resent these people. And I mean, I actually did read uh, Chanel Lal's column on this. Some parents will not be accepting of queer people and will hinder their children's learning due to their prejudice. It's like, well, they're not your kids, buddy. Exactly. And, and it's another little bit of neo-Marxism. When you say, well, okay, gay sex in a nightclub toilet is equally as valid as heterosexual sex within the confines of a marriage, that gives you the duty to teach both as if they're both equally valuable. Mm. That leads to all sorts of issues. Well, it does lead to all sorts of issues. Chanel went on to say, I think many people who label the education woke believe that if you do not tell young people that queer people exist, they will not become gay or transgender. That's delusional. Gay and transgender people have existed for as long as humans have walked the earth, including times it was a crime to be queer and there was a zero, and there was zero queer representation. No, Chanel, that's, um, I, I call bullshit on that. I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, that's absolute bollocks. Like it was just another situation of normal. Now, to me, this is where it's entirely up to each parent how you raise your children. And again, I get bum like you. I get really, really grumpy when people like Chanel, who to be fair, has been raised in a deeply conservative Fijian household. And this was part of the reason why he's he's become such an advocate against conversion therapy because they tried to literally pray away the gay for him. But not every household is like that, Chanel. Not every mm. household is like that. And not every conservative household is like that. You know, there are, mm. there are boundaries that need to be set. And this is one of the elements, I think, that it does need to be set. And it worries me that when it comes to these sorts of normalizations of sexualized behavior, 
does that then mean when one and remember one in three girls, one in four boys in this country are sexually abused by the time that they're 16, does that actually mean that when they encounter that abuse, they're actually struggling to delineate the align between what is accepted and what is abusive? Because well, I'm seeing those lines being blurred. Um, that um, went into a gay bar and was interviewing uh, men about their first homosexual experiences, and they, virtually all of them, were from an older man. And then, you know, they also asked them about their own, their own, you know, youngest sexual partners, and many of them confessed to having essentially been pedophiles. So, so there, there is an element of abuse in it that, you know, if, if you're going to say, oh, well, one's just as good as another, you're not going to understand there's some pathology. And I think beyond that, the other thing that I've been suspicious about is that the ubiquitous acceptance of homosexuality isn't necessarily just to encourage that kind of behavior as to poison fraternal love between heterosexual men that is often not in the interest of mm. governments and tyrants, the sort of love between men that you see in war and things like that. And it's sort of somehow, you know, somewhat, you know, it's just it's, it's a theory. Well, no, of, I know. I think you're onto something there because I think there is uh, that whole kind of bro code, you know, being with the boys, that kind of uh, closeness which I think men really need. Well, gay men, actually. I've spoken to a few gay men, and, and that's something they really want. You know, so I remember talking to one once. He said, you know, like, I just love to have some mates, you mm. know, you know, aren't in the scene. Mm. And it's quite a different thing. And, and that sexualization of all love is destructive. Yeah. No, and again... Does this tie into the high suicide rates that young men experience in this country? Because mm. they don't have that contact in terms of support and, as you said, fraternal love by just yep. having a mate, someone that they can ring up and chat to and, and actually physically spend time with, go and have a beer with. Well, especially I mean, as they get older, I mean, you'd know this more than me being, you know, more on the scene than I am, uh, Marie. But, you know, you hear a lot about older gay men really sort of being lonely and yeah. just like the uh, the trans lifestyle, it, it's not necessarily good for a uh, long lifespan. No. And you could say, well, maybe that's because, um, you know, they're facing terrible prejudice, but I don't think so. I, I don't. Even people who find it distasteful, I don't think. Uh, most people don't hate on people for I what don't, they I don't think do. a lot of it too, though, is not just even actually gay men or of a certain age, I think it's if you're not in a marriage and you don't have a partner or a spouse and, and, and an extended family around you, if you're an older person and you are on your own, you've either never you've either not married or you've or you've lost a partner or whatever the reasons may be, it's harder to make friends beyond mm. a certain age. And loneliness is a huge issue. I mean, actually, that's something I want to explore is the epidemic of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah, and when I was in Sydney in my in my apartment, it was kind of really good. I did a lot of sleeping and it was really easy to keep the place clean. But yeah, it was a very much, you know, a, a lot of the um the chaos and joy was uh was gone. Mm. 
Have you well, got anything else on your little list there? Yeah, I've got a lot underlined, but yeah, it, it, we're down to that high fiber, low nutrition mm. uh, kind of content. While you're having a little sift through there, one of the, and I mean, we've already covered this, and if you want to hear more about this, um, pop back uh, Paul Brennan a couple of days ago, did an interview with Sue Gray. Sue Gray was up, uh, up in uh, front of the Law Tribunal in regards to comments that uh, a complainant made that she had on social media, and uh, she has been found not to have breached conduct standards. And I'm really delighted about this, and I'm delighted about this is that the tribunal actually <laughs> Um, dare I say it, to be joyful about a tribunal doing its job because the complainant, it wasn't made in her context, it wasn't a client complaining about her as a lawyer, which is what those tribunals are there for, right? It's when you, as your job as a lawyer, have done something of concern against a client, they make a complaint back to the tribunal and it generally is quite specific. It should be the same with teaching, it should be the same with medicine, but these tribunals in recent years, have sort of grown a little bit too big for their britches and, and overstepped the bounds in many cases. We won't go there with a the medical council because we will be here all day. Mm. And I've already got my ranty pants on, so we, you know, we won't go there. We'll shell that for another day. However, I was really, really delighted that um, she was found not to have breached the standards. We do not consider when balanced against the right for free speech that the remaining charge could be made out to the standard of unsatisfactory conduct, the ruling said. Gray said she was happy with the decision. Freedom of political speech is really important. And although you're a lawyer, you can still wear different hats in the other areas of her life. And that is why it is so important, because what this ruling has meant is that Comments that she has made as a citizen, whether it be as a politician or as a private citizen, should not go back and affect her ability to practice the law. Well, it shouldn't, but I would wager that she's had a tough time fighting it. And uh, the tough time she's had fighting it would put uh, plenty of lawyers off sticking their heads out, just as it put plenty of doctors off actually saying, hey, you know... uh, I don't know about giving this to pregnant women because they saw poor old Matt Sheldon just said that and suddenly got in the crap. This hasn't well, really been tested to what we normally expect. I, and I this is off. why this is so important. I think if this if this had gone up to a tribunal even a year ago, the outcome would have been different. But I'm really delighted that it wasn't. To me, this is really important because, as you said, you know, doctors are being. I mean, so many doctors are being persecuted. And hunted, I know of two who've left the country to work mm. overseas, pursued by the medical council because uh, they, well, they tides, hold a different opinion. Tide's going out, and uh, you know th- that's why they're in. Oh well, you know, let's put all this behind us. You know, the point you made before about taking responsibility and reclaiming a community, I think, is exactly where New Zealanders need to focus more. Because I, I find it doesn't suit me necessarily to be whining. I don't like it. <laughs> it's disempowering. Uh, and I have thought maybe I should do a, another show which is looking for solutions. And I also thought maybe what Reality Check Radio should do is um, make some content for kids. You know, just say, hey, look, you know, here, here's as simple as we can make it. But this is balance, just so you've heard it and you can make your own minds up. But You've been told we're going to be roasting to death the next few years. Yeah, might be bullshit. Yeah, mm. here's why traditional approach to life is 
okay. as likely as anything to, to allow you to have a happy, fulfilling life. Here's why, you know, maybe it's not a good idea just to, you know, follow the old baby boomer, if it feels good, do it line of reasoning. As I said, I've got so much underlined. I've done so much reading, but it's quite a challenge to to pull it all together. As you say, we're coming into a, a period just before the election, which is going to get crazier and crazier. But yeah, there's some big gaps in it. The biggest gap is that $200 billion yeah. deficit and, and the gap in the paper where they should be talking about that a lot more. Yeah, they should be. And of course they won't. But, you know, this ne- next week is another week. So we'll see what they talk about next week. There's bound to be something else. Obviously, too, in the next, um, and we've also in the lead up, uh, Kelly J. Keane Mitchell is looking at coming back to New Zealand to actually attend the court case uh, of the person who is charged with assault. So that's also going to start. I mean, already Ali Mao's, um, you know, Gnashing her teeth over there. I'm sure there'll be lots more on that yeah. front as well. Between you know, there was a really funny thing in in that where she was basically saying, oh, you know, she was being overly provocative. It was kind of like the whole, oh, she was asking for it because she was wearing a short skirt. I shouldn't be telling you that that is a terrible argument, Ali Mao. I thought that that was kind of hardwired into you, knowing that, you know, women should be free to express themselves and without fear of men bashing them. I mean, just maybe reflect on that, Ali. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a bit of reflection going on. So there you go. If you've got anything you want to share with Marty and I, definitely do it. Um, again, we had some lovely feedback. Actually, should we have a quick check of the feedback? Because we that might make me feel better. Uh, yes, or, it will make you feel better. Uh, oh, here we go. Great media matters today. Thank for the in- thank you for the insight on Minister Kitty Allen. I would never have heard that on Corpse Media. That was from Mark. Marty needs to get his quotes on RCR merch. <laughs> today, Marty is a total cracker. Actually, you have got some good ones. We do need to get onto some merch. We need to make some t-shirts. You and I have been talking about these t-shirts for years. We yeah. do need to get around to doing it. A powerful medium, and uh, yeah, we, you're right. We we. Uh... Oh, here we go. Um, hope your day is going well. Please pass on that I love Media Matters with Maria Marty, the dynamic duo. Could listen to them all day long. Been spoiled for choice on RCR. Such a high caliber talent. It's from Trace. So there you go. Mm, go well, us. We all do right. appreciate it. Thank we, you. It's a it's a lonely thing sometimes being a voice in the wilderness, but um, I know that there are a lot of Kiwis out there who uh, have been gaslit along with us, and it's time to, uh, as you say, Marie take it back a bit, stop this government growing like cancer between us, or mm. all government, really. You will be back with a political agenda, of course, on Friday with Cam and Olivia. I will be back, so don't disappear here on RCR, I will be back with the Woke News of the Week coming up here on Reality Check Radio. Oh, thanks, Marie. Have a great week, everyone. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.